Hi, this is JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Okay, so uh, we are at the end of American Pride Month, that is July. Uh, I like to call it American Pride Month because a single day or even a single long weekend is not, a, is not enough to properly celebrate America's greatness. And so we're at the end of the month, and hopefully you had a great American Pride Month, including, of course, the 4th of July weekend, which is now a few weeks in our rearview mirror. And hopefully you'll keep that patriotic spirit, as I know you will, throughout the year. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you have Christmas, and they talk about keeping the Christmas spirit throughout the year. I like to think that we like to, in America, we like to keep the American exceptionalism spirit, American patriotic spirit, spirit throughout the year. And so here we are at the end of American Pride Month, and hopefully that will become a thing. Go online, uh, find petitions. There's a petition out there somewhere to have the month of July officially declared American Pride Month, so you'll have your homework after you listen to this podcast, go online, find a petition, sign a petition. Uh, why not? Uh, nothing wrong with American Pride, just as long as, you know, right now, of course, you have to compartmentalize your pride in America uh, from your love or lack of love of what the government is currently doing so kind of have to differentiate between the two but nonetheless um i hope you all had a great and exceptional american pride month of july and look forward to uh next july when we celebrate it again and so moving on we have uh, not a very uh, busy week, uh, week, past week, as far as news. We finally had a slow news week, and so I am here uh, struggling to find things to talk about today. Um, I guess that's a good thing, but um, so I'm looking through articles on Getter and Parler, and so I found this one, it's by Cheryl Atkinson, she is a an award-winning journalist, she's pretty well regarded, and so she wrote a piece I saw, which is interesting, you know, I was looking for something that would catch my eye, and so I saw this piece that she had written, um, I guess this is from, I guess this is something that she did for, for, for Reuters. Anyhow, it appears on her website, uh, Atkinson.com And don't ask me to spell it. She spells Cheryl with S-H-A-R-Y-L and Atkinson as A-T-T-K-I-S-S-O-N. But anyhow... If you want to follow her, she's on Parlor and get her. I'm sure she's on Facebook and Twitter, too. So, she, I saw this. I thought it was interesting. 
a new third party, a new third U.S. political party launching September 24th. And so that's interesting. First of all, I thought we already had a third party. You know, we thought we, we already had the Libertarian Party. I think the Libertarian Party just had their convention. I think they elected new leadership for the Libertarians. Um, so I thought that was the major political party, major third part political party in the United States. Which, of course... The Libertarians usually overlap more with the Republicans or the Conservatives in their philosophy and and what they're looking for in the way of uh, presidential and national candidates, they're, and even local candidates, I suppose. Um, so they're more aligned with the right than they are with the left. Um, but nonetheless... You have this article dated July 28th by Cheryl Atkinson, a new third U.S. political party launching September 24th. So let's see what this is about. And this is from her article. It says it's a following excerpt from Reuters. Dozens of former, former Republican and Democrat officials announced on Wednesday a new national political third party to appeal to millions of voters that they say are dismayed with what they see as America's dysfunctional two-party system. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there and say, well, it's kind of hard to argue and that's not dysfunctional, obviously, but I would say it is, I don't know, a dysfunctional uh, society we're in and our Political parties kind of reflect our dysfunctional society. And I think, from my opinion, there's one party that's a little bit more dysfunctional than the other. But anyhow, so you have a two-party two system. And so in America, that's because, and this is me talking now here, not, not Cheryl Atkinson. Um, this, is, this is my commentary now. Um, we have a two-party system and there's been a lot of attempts over the years to have a third major third party of course I mentioned the libertarians uh, Ross Perot had his reform party that was a thing for a little while um, that was probably the most really influential group of or the best I don't know, best option for a third party in the United States in a while. And, of course, Ross Perot basically is responsible for uh, George H.W. Bush not winning a second term because the votes that he took from Bush would have been enough, I believe, to win Bush the election. So, and if I remember, he serves... Perot had something upwards of 20 to 30 percent. So he was polling, I know, in, in the low 30s during that election. I believe that was the 1992 election, if I'm not mistaken. But anyhow, Ross Perot, he ran. Uh, he actually had some very good points, at least I thought at the time. 
he seemed like he basically seemed like a prototype almost for Donald Trump in res retrospect. Um, he was kind of a populist. He had his own strong ideas, didn't neatly fit into any, I guess, box with any uh, political party. And also Ross Perot, if you remember, he actually polled well enough that he actually got to be on the stage during the presidential debates. So I think that's the first time ever, if I'm not mistaken, that you had three uh, presidential candidates appear in a presidential debate. And also, he had his running mate also run, uh, appear in the vice presidential debate. I think his name was Admiral Stockdale, I believe. And so, Ross Perot kind of appealed to the people who were kind of disaffected with both parties at the time, particularly with the Republicans, I think, more so. And so he basically, he acted as a spoiler for the Republicans. He basically stole enough votes away from Bush that, um, that got Bill Clinton elected president. So, anyway... Um, moving on with the article here, uh, it says the new, th the new party called forward and whose creation was first reported by Reuters will initially be co-chaired by former democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey. So of course, Andrew Yang was kind of a populist, something in the mold of a Bernie. Um, he, if you remember, was for the basic income, basic universal income, where everybody gets paid regardless if you're working or not. That is a experiment that was tried in Scandinavia, and it failed for, you know, just the long and short of it, it failed in Scandinavia. And, but, you know, he had wide appeal. He wasn't quite as crazy as some of the other uh, Democrats in the field. At least he didn't seem so. And then there's Christine Ty Whitman. She was a Republican governor, which means she was a little bit more conservative than the usual Democrat, tax, tax and spend Democrat uh, kind that New Jersey currently has and would normally elect and so she was a bit more conservative um probably not um that conservative but more so than uh democrat and her i guess claim of fame was she cleaned up the state's beaches for you know from the pollution so apparently she did a uh, fairly good job of cleaning the sh cleaning up the shore from the pollution. So there, you know, it is what it is, I guess, for Christine Ta Whitman. Um, probably would never win a primary in any uh, presidential race. Um, she would not win the Republican primary for any nationwide race, I don't think. But anyhow, so she, it's her and. Andrew Yang, who are starting this thing. So that kind of gives you a clue of where the scene may be going. Uh, they hope 
I'm continuing here. They hope the party will become a viable alternative to the Republican Democrat parties that dominate U.S. politics, founding members told Reuters. Party leaders will hold a series of events in two dozen cities this autumn to roll out its platform and attract support. They will host an official launch in Houston on September 24th and the party's first national convention in a major U.S. city next summer. A new party is being formed by a merger of three political groups that have emerged in recent years as a reaction to America's increasingly polarized and gridlocked political system. Now, okay, it is polarized, that is true, and it's probably... I know this is maybe a little bit hard to understand, but I think it's a good thing that's good gridlocked. Um, it's better for them to do nothing than to do do the wrong thing. And that's why it's important, in my opinion, that the Republican, you know, that red wave comes in November as expected, so that that will put an end to all of this these huge spending bills, hopefully. Um, and then we can look forward to 2024 later, but first we have to kind of stop the bleeding and, and stop the ridiculous spending. Um, maybe I'll talk a little bit about that later, but so gridlocked, not necessarily a bad thing in my opinion, it, you know, if, if it's stopping stupid legislation from going through, then maybe the gridlock is a good thing. Uh, the leaders cited a Gallup poll last year showing a record two-thirds of Americans believe a third party is needed. Okay, so yeah, I was about to go into why we don't have a third party in this country. And that's because we don't have a parliamentary system. Okay, so in a parliament, parliamentary system, you can have two parties. It, it goes by whoever get whichever party gets the most votes. They get control of parliament they get to decide who the prime minister is and but they have to get i think like 51 percent or something like that of all the seats in parliament on to form their government they have to get a certain number of seats to form their government so they have to form coalitions with other parties so for instance the greens might have a coalition with labor uh, if they're going to have, if they want to go left, uh, you have the conservatives and maybe on the Brexit party, uh, they're still around, you know, the conservatives and less communist parties like in Britain, uh, they have a coalition of different parties of similar, similar ilk. So it'd be kind of like. If the Republican won, but only with a plurality, not with an outright majority, okay, if the Republicans won, they could they could go to Libertarians and say, hey, you are for most of what we're for, let's team up and let's form a government. And so those two parties could uh, kind of join up to form a government. And of course, all the ministers for that government would be of one of those two parties. Um, but here we don't have a parliamentary system. It's basically winner takes all. 
And so the problem with a third party is that, like Ross Perot in, not back in the 90s, acts as a spoiler. So say you voted for Ross Perot, your obvious second choice probably would have been George W. Bush because your third choice would have been uh, Clinton. And so people who voted for Ross Perot probably would have preferred if Perot didn't win that, that Bush would have won. Um, but in our system, you're basically taking, it's a kind of a zero sum game. And so you're taking away votes from basically your side. So basically you're taking votes away from other right leaning candidates or left leaning, leaning candidates. And that's kind of what happened. I think in uh, 2000, I, I believe where there was another, uh, green party candidate, uh, who took just enough votes from, from, uh, I guess it would have been Gore at the time. And, and so there was a Green Party candidate, uh, took just enough votes in just enough key states that flipped a couple of, of key states. And so in that way that the, the Green Party worked kind of against the, the Democrats in that case, or, or the more liberal voters. So because the Green Party act, kind of acted as a spoiler, then that mean that whole side lost. Uh, that's basically it. Now, of course, there's no surprise that parties will deliberately kind of encourage a third party or, or a spoiler candidate to, to uh, run, and they'll even support that candidate to a, a certain degree. Because they know that it'll take votes away from their opponents. And so that's usually a tactic of someone who has a plurality of the vote, but does not expect to win the election. So what they'll do is they'll have a spoiler candidate come in to take votes away from the, the person with the most likely uh, chance to win. So they... they have a spoiler candidate, that spoiler candidate is supposed to take votes enough away, particularly if it's a close enough election where it's going to be like 49, 51, all you need is 2% margin, all you need is that spoiler that take just 2% of the vote and that swings the election. Okay, so that's, that's so no surprising uh, can, uh, parties use spoiler candidates to take votes away from the other party and so that's kind of like a political dirty trick that's been around for a long time all right so where were we uh the new party is being formed all right, uh, two pillars of the new party's platform are to reinvigorate fair flourishing economy and to give americans more choices in elections more confidence in the government that works and more say in our future so that's pretty ambiguous. That can mean whatever you want it to mean, right? Um, if you're a Democrat, that means that, you know, the government that works, you know, you have more say in your future. Well, to me, to the Democrat, that means more ballot boxes everywhere and more mail-in voting. And to the Republican or left or the right-winning person, that means more confidence in government that works 
and maybe they have better, you know, voter ID or, or something of that nature. So that's they're I think they're uh, deliberately being vague here so that you can basically put in whatever you want or you can take whatever you want out of that statement, out of that quote. So they say, you know, quote, give Americans more choices in election, more confidence in a government that works and more say in our future. The party, which is centrist, has no specific policies yet. It will say at its Thursday launch, how will we solve the big issues facing America? Not left, not right, forward. Well, again, what what does that mean? Forward, what forward towards where? Um, forward, you know, the Democrats want to go forward into a eco-fascist oligarchy, um, and the Republicans want to go forward into a constitutional republic, which you know we're supposed to be already. But anyhow. So read more about the Ford Party here. And so click on that. Former Republicans and Democrats form a new third U.S. political party. And this is by Tim Reed. I guess this continued on. And I'm going to read real quick uh, through this. Okay, let's see. The merger involves the Renew America movement formed in 2021 by dozens of officials in the Republican administration of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush and Donald Trump. The Ford Party, founded by Yang, who was the Democrat Democratic Party in who left the Democratic Party in 2021 and became an independent and the Save America movement. A group of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents who, whose executive director is former Republic, Republican Congressman David Jolly. Okay, so, and what I really want to, okay, alright, this is the point I want to get to. Uh, historically, third parties have failed to thrive in America's two-party system. Occasionally, they can impact a presidential election. Analysts say that Green Party's Ralph Nader siphoned off enough votes from Democrat presidential candidate Al Gore in 2000 to help Republican George W. Bush win the White House. As I mentioned, the Green Party stepped in, took away uh, votes that would have went probably to Gore. Uh, he basically acted as, as a spoiler in that um, instance. It's unclear how the new Ford Party might impact either party's electoral prospects in such a deeply polarized country. Political analysts are skeptical Skeptical, it can succeed. I don't think it's meant to... Maybe I'm cynical, but I don't, meant, I don't think it's meant to succeed. I don't think it's meant to supplant either of the two parties, two major parties. I think it is meant to act as a spoiler because um, you look through here, it seems like there's a lot of Democrats and a lot of never Trumpers making up this party. And so I believe that their objective is to siphon off 
uh, votes for uh, that would normally go to, I guess, Donald Trump if he runs in 2024. So I think that's their idea. And I think, I don't know, maybe they're trying to campaign. This is kind of like a camouflage campaign, if you will, kind of a stealth campaign. Because they're, you know, look when they're they're launching it. They're launching it in September. So it's not early enough for them really to be organized to have any candidates for the midterms. It's, it's way too late for that. So what I think they're trying to do there, and again, this is just me um, guessing, is they're, they're trying to, to, I don't know, campaign do a stealth campaign probably against the republicans uh it's probably going to in the short term i would say it's probably going to cause mainly democrats to waste their votes um because they don't want to vote for the idea is that basically is that people who really are dissatisfied with the Democrats. Their only alternative now is to vote Republican. And so the idea is that instead of those votes going flipping from Democrat to Republican, some of those votes will flip Democrat to forward party and or Republican to forward so the never Trump or Republicans will have someone to vote for and they won't have to feel like they have to hold their nose and vote for Trump again or or DeSantis or whomever runs in 2024. So I think this is gamesmanship um, when I'm looking at the 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 new the you know people involved here it seems very much like um like a spoiler party and then okay so finally go down towards the bottom of the article uh they're quoting all right they're talking about uh Stu rothenberg a veteran nonpartisan political analyst said that it was easy to talk about establishing a third party but almost impossible to do so and he says the two major political parties start out with huge advantages, including 50 state parties built over decades, he said. Rothenberg pointed out that a third party presidential candidate like John Anderson in 1980 and Ross Perot in 1992 and 90, 1996 flamed out, failing to build a true third party that became a factor in national politics. So again, it's very hard for, um, it's very hard in this country to form a third party. And like I said, it's mainly due to the fact that we're not a parliamentary system. So it's not like if you vote one way, well, you can still get someone on your side, you know, for like labor might get their green party person and team up with them or something of that nature and the same for the right um in the parliamentary system you know you have a you know you have the ability to form a government even if you don't win the majority outright of the votes 
Japan. But you don't have that in the United States. Again, it's like one party takes all. And so the 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 winner of the presidential election is either going to be well, either going to be a Republican or a Democrat. But it's all going to be of one party or all of the other. So it's not going to be a combination. Now I know in the first couple of elections in our history, you had that. You had the the first runner-up, you had the winner and the first runner-up, and then you could have basically two people from opposite parties, one being the president and one uh, being the vice president. But that they kind of fixed that uh, early on in our country's history, and now you're voting for president and vice president and, on the same ballot. So... Yeah, that is coming from Reuters, and again, uh, that was July 22nd Reuters, or July 27th Reuters, former, former Republicans and Democrats form a new third U.S. political party, and I believe that that really smacks of gamesmanship that they're trying to form a spoiler party and so that what they want is two things probably uh the main thing is that they want to siphon off votes potentially from trump in 2024 they want to give people who are kind of on the fence maybe they don't like trump but they really don't like Biden because he's such a disaster. And they're not going to like Harris either because she's such a disaster. And so they really don't have anybody yet who can can win. That they don't, they don't, I mean, the Democrats don't even want Biden and Harris to run. They, um, you know, they don't want, they certainly don't want Joe Biden to run for a second term. And so they're trying to kind of put a buffer in between people who would flip from the Democrat to the Republican Party or, or independents who just are not going to vote Democrat for any reason in 2024. They're trying to put a buffer in between the independents and the more centrist Democrats and the Republicans. So they're kind of kind of digging this pit for those wishy-washy voters to fall into um, on the way to the polls, theoretically speaking, of course. And so that is that. Um, again, my thoughts are that, oh, and there's, there's one other thing. If you can run for national office you know what do what do people what do candidates do they collect donations okay so they're collecting money so this is a way for them to uh get campaign money and so guess what they get to travel across the country you know in any state that they have a candidate or any state that they're trying to be elected in and they're they have their travel paid for through their their um through their respective campaigns you know they have uh 
allotments for, you know, they can get a haircut. They can charge a haircut for, to their campaign. They can charge meals and things like that to the campaign. And so I guess the dirty, dirty little secret for either side, for any candidate really, is you know, you're living off of campaign money. As long as you're actively campaigning, as long as you're a candidate, basically a lot of things, if you think about it, a lot of your expenses um, can be paid through your um, campaign. And of course, people get hooked on that money and they, then they get into trouble because they're using that campaign money when they're not running for any office at the time. And they get a lot of uh, politicians get caught up in that and they have problems and they have to give back money or even pay fines and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's another reason that you would want to form a, a party is to get donations. What else are you doing? You're siphoning money off from the 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 candidates, right? You're you're siphoning money that would normally go to the Republicans and the Democrats. And I have a feeling that they're really trying to give donors who don't particularly like Biden, they they want to give those people who really don't like Biden someplace to put their money. And they they're, they want to say, well, don't give it to Trump or the Republicans. Give it to us. And so they're siphoning, siphoning off campaign uh, funds from either of the two parties. But my guess is that their target is really to um, at you know, act as spoiler, siphon money off from the Republicans, you know, wishy-washy, never Trumper Republicans, rhinos, you know, give them a place to put their money. And, you know, they can feel good about themselves and pat themselves on the back um, for not supporting some um, candidate, you know, from Trump and, you know, they can get back, uh, invited to parties again in their little social circles. And so they want to be respectable and they want to give to a party. And so they give to this uh, third party, this forward party. But um, they're not, I don't think they're going to win anything. They, there's no way that they can impact really the election in this November, we're 100 days as the standards right now, we're 100 days from the election, so a little bit more than three months. They don't, I can't imagine they could even get a candidate for any of the the uh, congressional races. I can't imagine that there's even time to run a candidate for any of those races. I'm sure they'd love to, and it'll be very telling where they put those candidates if they do. They'd be very telling who they run their candidates against and who runs, who do they run against ultimately? And is it just going to be or for the congressionals or are they trying to get governors? What are they trying to do and, and who are they running against and where do they run their candidates? That will be very interesting to see. If they're running a lot of candidates in 
I guess, purple districts or very light red uh, districts. They've, they're probably trying to siphon off votes and campaign funds from the Republicans. And so it'll be very telling who they run against. Now, if they run candidates like in, you know, maybe New York, you know, for governor or something like that in some blue states and they're, and they're putting up candidates in blue states, well, that will be very interesting too. If, if there's like a real vulnerable candidate and it'll also be interesting because they, you know, we don't really know what they're for. They were very careful in not telling us in any great detail whatsoever what their platform is. Again, you know, they're calling themselves centrists, but they have no policies. Well, you know, what what are your policies? Are you for low taxes or or tax de decreases? Are you for huge government spending? What what are you for? And I think they're not telling us what they're for. And I think that's very deliberate. And so it'll be very telling to see um, what they do going forward. But my sense is that this is shenanigans made to siphon off votes from wishy-washy uh, more, more wishy-washy, uh, Republican voters. Maybe they voted f for the first time for Trump and, you know, they, they don't w normally wouldn't vote or, you know, they're certainly not going to vote for Biden or Harris. And so they're trying to place a buffer between the voters like those the soft voters, the, the voters in the middle and the independents and the soft Democrats and the soft Republicans, they're trying to put a buffer in between the Democrats and, and uh, Republicans so that they can limit the number of Democrats crossing over and holding their nose to vote for a Republican because the Democrat candidate is just so bad. So that's what they're seeing. And so we'll just have to keep our eyes on that. But yeah, as, as you hear more about this party, uh, think about who they're running against and who they are uh, potentially a spoiler against. So they going to siphon votes and money away from the Democrat or from the Republican. And it'll be very telling. I and mean, I think it will be, I think you will see this is my prediction, of course, you know, it's a very, you know, dangerous game, I guess, to make political predictions, particularly, you know, since 2016. You know, it's not a very good uh, growth field, making political predictions, particularly in this country. But anyhow, to the extent that I dare, I think that they will more often be spoilers for the Republican. In other words, they're going to siphon off uh Republican votes. And so a Republican who might edge out a victory with 1% is going to lose by 1% because the votes are being taken away from the candidate. But we'll see. It'll be very telling uh, what districts they've run candidates in, what their policy is, and 
who they're really trying to get votes from. And again, it's kind of the, you know, if you're forming this party, remember it's, and you're actually going to run on this ticket, then it's kind of a win-win situation because it's a way, again, you're, you're having your travel paid for, you know, you can, your haircuts and, you know, if you can, uh, expense a, a lunch to a, um, you know, all you had to do is meet with somebody, you know, one voter, you know, or one news person, one news outlet and have lunch. And then, you know, you're not, you don't have to feed yourself basically for eight, nine, ten months, you know, if you're a, a serious candidate for president. So there you go, or for two months or three months, if you're going for governor or uh, congressman. But, I mean, it'll be very telling. And it's also a sign, I guess, uh, that there's not a lot in the news today. And so a couple other things that I have been looking at um, just checking up on the worldometers for coronavirus cases. Um, if you look at USA, uh, normally if you've been following uh, the United States, uh, you know that generally in the summer, the USA has a dip in their number of uh, cases and deaths. And so the number of deaths have, has been down since the spring and it's stayed down all summer long. So hopefully that trend will continue. Now, normally in the United States and Northern hemisphere, you get to the cold winter months and people start getting driven inside and that raises the number of cases. And you always in Northern hemisphere, you tend to have a fall winter spike, um, Basically, usually peaking somewhere around January, February time frame. And it's kind of the opposite. So if you go to Australia, for instance, right now they're experiencing a, a peak in their, in their, um, their numbers. So kind of looking at the numbers... Their cases, active cases, are kind of going up. Uh, number of daily deaths, they are spiking. So they were at a low during, I guess, from fall to really through our winter months. And so from September to August of 2021, so September of 2020 to uh, 2021 they they had a very low number of deaths and of course they had zero cover COVID policy very harsh restrictions now they have I kind of ironically I I suppose they have uh, more people obviously are going to be vaccinated against the thing, and yet their cases and deaths climb. And of course, they're, they're peaking now because 
for them it's their winter in the summer hemisphere and so likely there's a lot of people inside and so their deaths will peak um, they had very low instances starting in February and March and April and May uh, the numbers dipped down for them in Australia now they're kind of rise now they're kind of spiking up again so they're kind of the opposite of us in the United States and Europe so that is Australia so let's for the heck of it go to another one of my favorite countries to look at and that is because they're kind of the closest thing we have to a control group for this whole COVID-19 thing and that would be Sweden. Sweden pretty much had a laissez-faire policy. Their idea was let's you know protect the older people and the infirmed and everybody else can get it and get uh, natural resistance, natural immunity. And so that was that's what was their strategy. And so unlike a lot of places in Europe and America where you have real jagged lines um, in Sweden, you have tend to have spikes where you would expect them in the winter. And then it, f it falls way, way down in the summer months and it spikes way, way up. Well, not way, way up, but for them, relatively speaking, it spikes up again in the winter months and it comes way down. And that's been so for going on three years now, for two years now, that's been pretty much uh, what's going on in Sweden. And so let's take a quick look at their daily deaths. And again, I'm going to have to describe this to you. Um, but if you want to go, you can look at it's www.worldometers.info and go on coronavirus and then look it up by country. And so we're looking at Sweden now. Sweden had their seven-day moving average for this week was one that's down from eight i guess a week ago they've been aver averaging in single digits for um since pretty much since may it looks like they had a spike in as i mentioned in the winter months spiking in february where they went up to 60 deaths. So, and then previous to that, in the previous summer, they had average, they were averaging like zero. They had several weeks at zero or one. And so they were in single digits for basically all of their spring or, or, or at least all of their summer and most of their fall, they were in single digits and they, spiked up so what's interesting is and this is pretty much a case of attenuation where the virus kind of adapts it doesn't want to kill um, people want doesn't want to kill its host too quickly before it can spread so what happens is kind of like the weaker varieties 
of the disease uh, that don't kill you as fast or or not as lethal, you know, they tend to become the, the predominant strain. And so you have, at the beginning, you had, I guess what you call the classic COVID by now. And they were just about at 100 deaths. So Sweden has barely reached triple digits in deaths throughout the whole thing. I mean, triple digits it would be the maximum, really. Uh, I guess they had uh, single days where they had triple digits, but they have not had a weekly moving average or a seven-day weekly moving average of triple digits that I can see. It gets up as far as 99, and it goes way down. So go all the way back to 2020. It spikes up around May, and then it's a sharp decrease and then, and so you have, uh, starting in July, August, and going pretty much to November, there's hardly any cases at single digits, and it kind of spikes up again, almost to as many as the previous year in uh, 2020. And so in their first, I guess, full um, flu, cold and flu season, their first winter in COVID back in uh, December, January of, of 2020, they had a spike pretty much um, equal to their initial spike. And then it goes way down. Then they have a little spike um, in the spring months and it plummets down to single digits and to even zero in the mid uh, midsummer months and it rises up slowly and it spikes up again in the January of 2022 it spikes up again and then it comes down in spring and summer and so now they're holding steady at around averaging around between eight and one death per seven days or on their seven day average so they, that would be like the classic, as far as I understand it, the pattern of a disease where you have a spike and then a trough and another spike and then another trough and then, and then smaller and smaller spikes until basically there's not that much difference anymore. And so Sweden seems to be, because what they didn't do is they didn't, uh, lockdown and they didn't you know as soon as they had cases like in Australia they would have a lockdown and then the cases would plummet for a few weeks and they would go back up and you'd see like a lot of countries that did lockdowns between the beginning they have real jagged lines but in Sweden they just had peaks and valleys pretty predictable uh, seasonal peaks and valleys just like any other respiratory disease um, they might graph where if you oppose that to other countries, um, I'm just going to look at, um, the world. So bear with me as I am again, I am on worldometers.info and you can, it's a very good, uh, reliable tool for tracking, 
um, and graphing, see what's going on in COVID, number of cases, which countries it's rising in and which countries it's falling in. And uh, you can judge by how well, how well they're doing by the numbers here. So this is a good resource. And you've heard me refer to this site a lot of times over the years um, with regards to COVID-19. So I'm going to find a good European, your good typical European country. So let's do, make an alphabetical order. And now we're going to go to Germany. Okay. And let's see how they, they look. Uh, daily deaths. Okay. Um, again, a lot of, lot more jaggedy lines. It's pretty much congruent roughly with Sweden and other countries. Uh, they too have their peak. They had initial peak and then they had a real big peak in 2020, winter of 2020, and they came down and then it peaked back up in, in the winter of 2021. And now in 2022, again, things are opening up and, you know, you have whatever's going on with the vaccines in that country. I don't know what the situation is really there. And so they're, they have smaller peaks, basically, um, smaller peaks every time when they have a little, I guess, a little outbreak in that country, they have smaller peaks and that's the way it goes. You have larger peaks and then smaller subsequent peaks. And so Germany pretty much. And what's really interesting is, and I don't know why they don't have this for United States, but they have for other countries and Germany, they have outcome of total closed cases, recovery versus recovery rate versus death rate. Okay. And here their, their latest rate is 99.5% recovery rate. So that means 99 of the and a half percent of the people who have uh, come down, tested positive in Germany for the virus, 99.5% of them have recovered. And conversely, if you want to look at the death rate, death rate is 0.5%. So only half a percent of the people who come down with COVID actually die from COVID at least as of uh, July 31st, as of today in 2022, that's 0.5% of the people in Germany who contract COVID die from it, ultimately die from COVID. And so there you go. Unfortunately, you don't have that um, for every country. You don't have that for the United States. You do have it for other countries. I think they probably have better metrics than we do, um, just to be honest. But so it's a little bit of a review of COVID. So not too much there. Um, don't be surprised if there's some sort of spike. You're, they're already gearing us up for 
uh, mass mandates and vaccine mandates. They're trying to keep that going for at least another season. And they know that there's going to be uh, spiking cases. I mean, we've seen the pattern now. I've just described the pattern in three different countries now where you have uh, spikes during the winter months and troughs during the warmer months. And so that's pretty much been the way it's been in basically all the countries that I've looked at, particularly the ones that have winter and summer. Now, if you have, you know, equatorial countries that are hot all year round, maybe it's going to be different. But for countries that have hot and cold seasons, definable hot and cold seasons, um, that's what you have. You have the spikes during the cold season and the troughs during the hot seasons. Um, some states in the United States, you have a little bit of a spike because that's driving people, the hot weather is driving people indoors into the AC. And so now with, I mean, we'll see was people, less people have AC. Well, what's how that's going to affect the, uh, death rate. But you know, that's something that we can talk about later on another podcast. See how, um, all the geniuses in the, uh, world economic forum and uh, all these globalist organizations who say we shouldn't have, uh, air conditioning, um, we're going to find out uh, how right or wrong these geniuses are. I think we know um, the answer to that. But we'll save that for another time. So I want to thank you all for listening. And please follow LibertyRelearn.com online. Follow Liberty Relearned on the uh, Facebook. Also on Getter. Follow us on, come on, follow us on at LR podcast and at LR podcast. I want to make sure I said that right at LR podcast on getter. And then you'll see a nice little banner says Liberty Relearn podcast. And also on Parlor. And but it's me, JP Mac on Parlor. So you will see that. And thank you for listening. And I appreciate you listening. I remember still time to watch Two Thousand Mules, find out a little bit more about what's going on with our elections. If you haven't watched it, I just want to mention real quick that um my post I guess a couple months ago now, it was, you have to see 2,000 mules. That was my most popular post by far this year. A lot of people are interested. And so if you haven't lost it yet, please, just still time. Still, It's still valid, so go see it. It's a good movie. Uh, thank you for uh, listening and following online. Until next time, stay healthy, happy, and free.